Hello and welcome to the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast, a show where we interview top Blair Upper Cervical chiropractors to glean their insights, tips, and passion. In each episode, your hosts, Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. John Stenberg, bring something unique and inspiring to help you grow and succeed. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Blair Technique Podcast. I'm excited to have the president of the Blair Technique Membership Association, Dr. Jake Hollowell, with me. You're on the other side. The other side. Okay. (laughs) For folks that don't know, the nonprofit side of the Blair Technique Society. Uh, And we've talked about this at the conference and other other avenues, putting this society together and and being able to do all the different things we want to do. There's there's some structuring to that. So uh, we'll reference back to some conversations we've had at the conference and other places. If you if you want to know the details on that stuff, it gets a little convoluted. Uh, but what you need to know is that Jake's been in a leadership position as an advanced instructor and in various roles and capacities with the Blair Technique for several years, right? So currently serving as the president on that side of the board. Uh, so Jake, give us an idea a little bit about how you get involved with that. I know a lot of us have interacted with you on the CBCT side of things, on the technique side of things, but in the sort of chiropractic uh, organizational side of things, give us an idea of sort of your your path up to the position you're in right now and kind of what what that role entails. Well, um, obviously when I when I came in, we only had one one Blair board. So we have the, which I'm currently the president, so it's the 501c3. And then due to different changes that have occurred in legislation, um, we to make everything as legal as possible and not enter any gray area, then we split up into the uh, the membership. And so the membership is the 501c6, which is also a form of nonprofit, but just doesn't have the same exact benefits as a C3. So C3 is, is pretty hard to get. If we tried to get it again, it would, it would probably be impossible, but we were grandfathered in. And so we want to keep that um, because that allows us to get donations and they're, they're tax deductible donations. And so that's one of the big things among other things, but you know, that's, that's uh, details. We won't, we won't get into all the details, but uh, what, what really led me to the position is, I mean, I love Blair, you know, um, for me, uh, you know, people probably heard this story, but I started out as a, as a full spine um, chiropractor and uh, I just didn't like it. It didn't, um, it, it, I wasn't achieving the goals that I thought that the chiropractic philosophy explained you know i it just seemed like i would pop in backs and i don't know people well, i feel better a little bit and then they always just came back and you know we took x-rays pre and post in the in the first clinic i worked in and you know i was a young guy so i didn't have too much expectation of the change that i would have but you know the the doc that was a leader in the clinic that had been there for over 10 years i took all the x-rays i was the new guy so you know i was the x-ray tech as well um, and I took all those x-rays before and after, and there was just never anything that changed. And so, you know, you just start to kind of scratch your head a little bit and think, well, what am I doing? And I actually got to a point where I was very depressed and I wanted to quit chiropractic, um, you know, with all the debt. <laughs> it just wasn't a good feeling. And uh, I had gone in the fourth quarter to uh, Dr. Forrest's office to interview him. We had, a, I, think, I don't know if it was our philosophy class. I think it was our philosophy class. We had to go interview one of the chiropractors in the area. And I, don't, I really don't know why to this day I went to his office. Um, it really, you know, I was a full spine guy. I didn't even know what Blair was. I mean, that was the time when we had, uh, you know, the Blair Witch movies out. So I was like, this is Blair Witch stuff, you know, like which a lot of patients think too. <laughs> 
Um, and uh, so I'd gone to his office, I think in fourth quarter and I'd gotten on his email list. And so I'd always received his emails. And when I was on this, you know, dark moment, um, you know, there goes email and he was having a seminar at his office. And I said, well, let's give it one more shot because I'd actually had taken Nuka and I'd taken Nietzsche's and I'd been under care and none of them um, were able to get the result that I was looking for, unfortunately. And, uh, and went to Dr. Forrest's class and, you know, had the adjustment and uh, it just changed my life. It changed the way my brain processes things. I mean, it just, it changed everything. And from that point on, I wanted to practice Blair. And so, you know, because obviously everyone knows Dr. Forrest is, is kind of our, you know, after there was Dr. Blair, then Dr. Muncie, and then Dr. Forrest has kind of has taken Blair on his shoulders and just carried it, you know, decades um, and obviously, you know, he's at a point where he'd probably like to relax a little bit. And, and I wanted to kind of step in and, 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 uh, and help out the Blair Society and, and serve this role and, um, and, and, and try to improve things, you know, because when we look at um, Dr. Blair, when we look at B.J. Palmer, you can see that they were constantly trying to improve things. That doesn't mean we need to reinvent the wheel. I mean, Dr. Blair already created an excellent technique, but there's always those little small details uh, that we can we can continue to improve upon. And, um, and, you know, that's why I'm passionate about being the, the president of the, of the Blair Society. And um, hopefully we can make those small improvements and, and, and improve those details and then pass those details on to all the Blair chiropractors so that, you know, we can all get the best result possible. Yeah, I think a lot about momentum, you know, when you're talking about that, it's like there's there's a huge push to get any technique organization to be viable, let alone successful. And, you know, Dr. Forrest and his cohort and his peers, you know, in the, in the decades leading up to when you and I got involved, they did a lot of thankless work with a small group and laid a lot of the foundation for, you know, the, what we're enjoying today. And we're trying to, you know, like you said, just kind of continue with the momentum and, and add value where we can and contribute. And I think, you know, if you're the kind of person that loves what you do and loves chiropractic, you just want to find a way to do your part. And I know that sounds kind of, kind of cliche, but I just think of it as stewardship. You know, it's like anybody that had Dr. McCoy in, uh, at life university at the last, the last lecture of his topics class, which was just different discussions related to topics in chiropractic. It was not a mandatory lecture. It was a voluntary lecture and it was on stewardship. And he did this whole, this whole presentation about what it means to be a good steward of your chiropractic career, you know, different ways that you can contribute. Uh, and, and there's no, there's no shortage of people that can identify problems or gripe about things that w they wish were better, but there aren't that many people that, you know, kind of raise their hand and say, well, what can I do about it, you know, and, and bring solutions. So um, I, I feel that that's, you know, that's something that is important to me too. You know, it's like, let's kind of bring some energy and some uh, enthusiasm to the table and try to be a part of, you know, making things better. And, and that's also in gratitude for what, you know, like you said, for years and years out of just, you know, passion for the technique, Dr. Forrest and others have just continued to, you know, continue to pour into it. So uh, out of gratitude for those guys and their sacrifices and service for, you know, us to be able to come in and, and have it a lot easier to learn and become proficient in Blair and to, and to be trained in Blair and to be successful with Blair. I mean, those guys really did a lot of the work. So I appreciate your involvement and leadership. And, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to see I think you you can weigh in on this too. I think the board is so is very well rounded right now. You got young guys like me that have been in practice for five years and maybe have a different perspective and you know ideas about things. And then you got folks like Dr. Tomp and Dr. Fiore and others that have been around for a long, long time, and they can bring the historical perspective in. And you know they've got the longevity and the and the 
perspective of decades, you know, to, to kind of flesh that stuff out, Dr. Campbell. So I think we're in a pretty good spot and it's really exciting. Uh, a lot of the conversations going on. Does that, does that seem uh, the same on your side of the organization? I think you, I think you nailed it on the head. And I think, um, you know, I always tell you, I think we all need to kind of give back and donate. And so there's some people that go to, you know, a soup kitchen and they help out or they donate clothes or they do whatever. And, you know, for me, I'm, I'm in love with chiropractic and I want to help improve chiropractic, not only for our Blair members, which is actually your side, but for the public that's out there that, that needs it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just going back to, to, to what you said, there also are people that, you know, that sit around, like they may criticize and complain about things. Oh, why don't we do it this way? Why don't we do it this way? Well, if you want to make those changes, if you think you have a really good idea of how we can improve the Blair technique, then the board, you, you can obviously you don't need to be a board director or president or whatever. I mean, you can just come to us and tell us. But if you really want to shape the way that the Blair technique is going to be taught and, and how everything is going to work going forward, you know, being on the board is the way to do that. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to, to be on the board in, in, in the first place. So I think you, you nailed it on the head. And I think we do have a bunch of different characters <laughs> I like to call them characters on the board and everyone has their own opinion and i'm uh, i'm more and more at peace with being around people that also think different than me and I actually actually enjoy being around people that think differently than me some people just want i don't know they want to be around yes yes people but i i don't and i don't i don't get frustrated i see sometimes other people you know i'll give an idea and i can see you know sometimes other people in other groups they get frustrated with new ideas and they don't like it and it's you know my way or the highway and um, and I try to, you know, run our side of the board where I, I want input. And now if people don't give input, then I'm going to do the best that I can with, with my ideas. Um, and so that's why, you know, if you, if you guys have any ideas, anyone that's listening to the podcast, that's a, that's a practicing Blair chiropractor or any upper cervical chiropractor. And you say, hey, you know, I have some good ideas, you know, bring them to me. I'm, I'm, I'm open book. Um, and, uh, you know, that's how we learn. That's how we improve. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we don't need to to go too far down the rabbit hole on the organizational side of things because it's it's really interesting. And I think when folks have ideas, it, it's I'm I'm humble. I don't you don't know how things really work, right? From the outside looking in, you don't really have an, a good idea about you know how much time and energy is dedicated to to what we're already doing, let alone doing new and different things. And that's all voluntary. You know, we're not, nobody's getting paid for this. Everybody's doing it because they, they care and they want to contribute and it's above and beyond what they do with their own practice and their families and other interests in chiropractic. So um, we don't need to go too far down that rabbit hole. But uh, I think one of the reasons I got involved was because so many of you guys helped me when I was brand new doc and didn't really have much to offer, you know, but I had a lot of questions and uh, you know, I had a lot of successful Blair docs that were willing to just lend a hand for no good reason, you know, other than they wanted to see me do well. And they wanted to see, like you said, the technique um, flourish, you know, and, and a young eager guy who wanted to learn was, you know, was welcomed in with open arms, which is really cool. So it's, it's fun to be able to provide that opportunity for others. But speaking of different ideas, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit because we don't just talk about, you know, Blair technique all the time. And we don't just look at CBCTs all the time. We had this conversation uh, maybe a couple months ago. I don't even know how it came up, but you kind of just dropped this idea on me and I've been thinking about it a lot and so I wanted to kind of share it if you if you're welcome uh with a wider audience just to kind of stimulate some conversation about subluxation here because really what we're trying to do here with this technique is to clear folks out you know remove interference and correct the subluxation and you know we understand the positive health benefits of that uh not just in the short term but over life and so we're always thinking differently especially with things like imaging and new technology for measuring you know neurological um 
components of subluxation, we're always thinking about like, what's really going on and how do we do better? Uh, and, and so you had dropped this theory on me the other day. It's, you know, I, I, I just kind of made a note of it here as the abnormal spinal reflex theory of subluxation. Uh, so would you introduce that rationale? Now, give me an idea of where you're coming from with this theory of subluxation as sort of an abnormal spinal reflex. And then we'll kind of talk about, you know, where, where you that thought process came from and then what we're supposed to do with it. Yeah, so I think uh, actually kind of what we were what we were talking about as we were starting the podcast is this, you know, there's a I think a phase in the beginning of our career where we overcomplicate everything, right? And uh, and as we go, I try to simplify things, and you know, sometimes I'll overcomplicate it again, and I try to go back and, and simplify it again. And uh, and you know, since since I've been a chiropractor, even when I was a full spine chiropractor the first year, you know. I, I've always seen, you know, I, I try to read people's face and you can see as you're trying to explain things, they're just not getting it. You know, they're just not getting it. And uh, and so there's one thing, obviously, you know, our our mental side, uh, you know, as chiropractors, how we talk to each other is one thing and then how we communicate to the patient. And so I, just one day I, I just started, you know, explaining to people instead of explaining how I was, I just, you know, I kind of switched over and I, uh, and I basically told them, you know, I'm checking different types of reflexes in your spine and it kind of came to me that, well, maybe a subluxation is a type and this kind of little definition I'm, I've been playing with and I keep changing it and actually I sent it to you and then you added a few things into it. So what we have right now is a, a vertebral subluxation is an abnormal neuroskeletal reflex um, caused by excessive uh, physiological stress loads. Or another way I put it was a vertebral subluxation is an abnormal neuroskeletal reflex that occurs when the body is unable to adapt to physical stress, which philosophically and scientifically, it's, it's, it's a little more accurate. And then this results in persistent spinal malposition and altered neurologic function. And uh, what I noticed is, because I, I take care of a lot of uh, medical doctors and other people in healthcare professions, and, uh, and I started kind of using this definition. They're like, oh, you know, what are you checking when you're checking the feet? What are you doing when you're asking me to lift up my legs and, you know, turn my toes together and do the prill check? You know, and all the different, and the challenges and so, you know, I used to go, oh, I put pressure. And if you put pressure on the vertebrae, you push it more in the misalignment and this, that, and the other, and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the person, they're just not listening. You know, a lot of people, you'll notice after a while, there's a, that type of patient that asks a question and they're not really interested in the response. And <laughs> especially if it's more than one or two sentences, right? They ask and you see, you just, you just, you get like the best explanation ever. And then they're already thinking of the next question they're going to ask. And they didn't even record what you just said. You, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, well, I got to really simplify this. And so then I just started saying, look, I'm looking for reflexes. You know, when the when the your body becomes overwhelmed with stress, it can't adapt it. Or I don't even use that word adapt too much, but, it, you know, too much stress um, will cause this abnormal spinal reflex, which we call a subluxation. The subluxation blah, 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 does this. And so when I'm checking your legs, I'm checking for an abnormal reflex. When I go and touch your neck and recheck your legs or we do the prill checks, I'm checking for an abnormal spinal reflex. Even when I do the titron, you know, the way I explain it, and I actually got some of these ideas from Crowder's um, thesis, mm. he, uh, uh, you know, Bud Crowder, and, uh, and you know, he talks a lot about in the, in the part that I read that I liked was metabolism. Well, if your spine is compensating, obviously muscles are working more on one side than the other. There will be an altered metabolism, which will then change the temperature. So once again, it's all related to reflex. So I, I, I kind of got excited about it. And obviously, it's a work in progress, and and it really doesn't take away from any other definition of of subluxation is just adding in that word reflex, which tends to be more, I, I feel mentally digestible 
um, for the for the public. And you know, from a chiropractic philosophical standpoint, it, 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 there probably could be some inconsistencies or some things that we could we could improve upon. And, and I'm open to that. And that's why we're talking about it today. I'm sure somebody will get mad and write me a letter. No, it's not this. And, and I know that there are. There's some chiropractor, I won't mention his name, but he, he actually mentioned this. Is, is it a reflex or is it more of a, you know, a uncoordinated function or conscious? He used a bunch of other words that I didn't understand. It was too, it was too complex for me. <laughs> um, but I just try to, I, I just try to keep it, uh, keep it as, as, as simple as possible. And I think for me, something that always bothered me when looking at the other definitions, and we all know the, the basic definitions, you know, a subluxation is a, is a vertebra that's lost its proper juxtaposition with a vertebra above, below, or both to the point where it's occluding a foramen, impinging on a nerve, and interfering with uh, mental impulses and the different, you know, versions of, of that. And I think the, the thing that, you know, as I've worked with CBCT, that there just isn't that much occlusion. And, uh, you know, we move all the time. So if we're moving all the time, you know, there are going to be moments when there's occlusion, there's not. And obviously we're talking about a fixed occlusion and not just moving, which should go back to normal. But I feel like in that definition, that's we have the technology nowadays to to test that. And so if that is the case, then, you know, we take an image, whether it's a CBCT or an MRI, and we, we measure it before and after. And we're just not seeing, or at least to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, I would love to be corrected if I'm wrong. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have any ego on it. Um, I just don't, I don't see that on the CBCT. You know, I see people that have gotten better and there's no change. There are sometimes where it will change, um, but it doesn't seem to be a requirement for them to for them to have improved um, neurologic function and and communication and coordination of the nervous system. Yeah, there's a couple couple key key points that I jotted down there as you were talking. I remember having this conversation, kind of you know working on a Google Doc or something with some of this languaging, but it does kind of get you thinking. And then you know one of the things that that you mentioned was the persistence. You know there are things that ebb and flow, and there are physiological ups and downs and and functions and dysfunctions that happen as a part of life. And one thing I try to encourage patients with all the time is like, look, you know, being healthy is not just about feeling nothing all the time. You know, there's times where, you know, you go, you go, you slip on a trail and fall on your ass. You're going to feel it, right? You you might get a bruise. You might be a little sore. You might limp for a couple of days, but you should bounce back, right? You should recover. It's the persistent dysfunction. It's the persistent state of uh, neurological interference. That's, that's really the problem. And even with, even with alignment, you know, alignment is kind of a, I tell patients this all the time. It's a little bit of a misnomer with what we do as chiropractors. Cause you know, a lot of people say, well, a bone pops out and then we shove it back in and then it pops back out and we shove it back in and it's pinching a nerve and we unpinch it and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, that's just not true. And it doesn't pass the sniff test for people. It's like in 2022, you tell someone like, well, your, you know, your rib popped out and your thoracic spines pinching a nerve that goes to your lungs or whatever. It's like, they're going, really? I don't know. That, mm-hmm. that just seems kooky. And, and they're right. So I think it behooves us to have conversations that are passing the sniff test and are a little bit more mentally digestible and just kind of meet them where they're at and not, not have to take so many leaps, you know, to connect the dots between what we're doing with them and how it, it should impact their health. And so that, that the key there being it's persistent. I tell folks like, you know, you have injuries and things happen. You, the connective tissue that holds the spine together is weakened. You're going to wiggle out of alignment over time in the direction of that weakness or stress. And there's a lot of other factors that, you know, that play into that. So when we're making adjustments, it's not that, you know, and some techniques do this, right. They'll make an adjustment and they'll immediately take an x-ray and say, well, you're back in alignment. And in Blair, we don't necessarily look about it and think about it that way because, you know, our slipping and tracking concept of misalignment and how the biomechanics of subluxation, um, 
occur in the spine, especially with asymmetries and multiple misalignments and things like that. Uh, it's less about, you know, shoving the bone in. It's more about kind of a dynamic stability uh, that occurs with proper coordination and muscle control of the, of the spine, like we were talking about before. So uh, the, what's the physiologic rationale? I mean, because you get this, you got this idea and this theory, and sometimes we accidentally say something smart to patients and we're like, oh, I got to remember that. You know, it just came out. And it was like, sounded pretty good. Um, as you're observing patients now and you're kind of, you know, thinking it and, and mulling on this, has this changed anything about the way that you do any of the Blair technique? I mean, whether you're choosing different adjustments, um, how you're categorizing patients, anything like that? No, it doesn't change anything like that. I think it, it, it goes more to exactly what you just said, you know, in that, uh, you know, before we would say, oh, well, the bone's out of place. So people say, oh, is my bone out of place? Bone in place. And, you know, and as you mentioned, well, so let me see the image before and after that shows that it's in place. And obviously there are techniques, orthogonal techniques that will take that, but they're not actually showing you know, one bone versus the other, it's actually a global change. Right. And then there's also skeptics that will say, oh, well, you position them this, that, and the other, and, you know, whatever. Um, so, so there is all that. And so now instead of saying, you know, uh, I've uh, corrected the misalignment, I've corrected the reflex is what I'll, I'll usually say. So I'm checking to see if there's a negative or abnormal reflex. And then the analysis will show me that. And then based on that, then I will do the same layer correction I've always done <laughs> um, to, to correct the, re the reflex and then restore proper communication between the brain and, and the body so that the body can, you know, cure and heal and uh, work as optimally uh, as possible. And, you know, also on that, as you were talking, something else popped into my head. So one of the things that I've always thought about, and I think that you know, obviously, you know, a lot of our philosophy is vitalistic, but then the, the definition of, of, you know, a lot of the definitions of subluxation are very mechanistic. Right. And so, you know, I also kind of, you know, thinking about this reflex theory is, well, obviously we talk about holding, right? You know, we've cracked a person and they're holding. So, okay, well, what, what exactly is that? And there's also the other side is, well, what is holding the vertebra in the subluxated position? Right. And so a lot of the definitions are, you know, you know, if you look like a medical definition of a set subluxation or, you know, the malposition and and they they don't really talk about well, why doesn't it just, you know, I mean, they do talk. We do talk about philosophy, why it doesn't fix itself. But there's just kind of, I don't know, for me, there's just a little detail missing. And, and with the reflex idea, that makes sense. It's now more reflex. So the, you know, the muscles are not are no longer coordinated by the nervous system. And so then they're holding it in that position. And then we come in with a universal force, to adjustive force. And then the body is able to then do an adjustment um, and then, you know, return to return to normal. Hmm. I don't know yeah. if that makes sense or not, or if I just confused you. <laughs> no, no, it does. And that's, I've never thought about holding that way. It's like, you know, holding a subluxation versus holding an adjustment. Cause it's kind of, but I have had patients ask me like, well, you know, so I haven't, I haven't had an adjustment in six weeks or two months or whatever. And I'm like, I've been feeling okay. Most of the time, like there's some times where I feel a little sore, but like, what's, so like, am I in alignment? Like what's going on? Right. And that's, that's kind of what they're asking. And I've always thought about this too, because getting into Blair technique as a, as a young doc, and I'm like, I'm just, you know, working it out for myself. And you, you hear all these different stories. It's like, well, here, here's a different example outside of Blair. The first upper cervical doctor I ever met was a NUCA doctor actually here in town where I practice now. And I was just visiting family. And I thought, I kind of want to go see what this NUCA thing's all about. I'm going to go job shadow this, this doc. So went and watched and, and had no real idea of what was going on, you know, with the checkup process. And I said, well, who adjusts you? And she goes, oh, I've been holding my adjustment for 11 years. I fly up to, you know, somewhere in Canada once every year or two and get checked. And I was like, 
what? You know, cause at the time I was into full spine, right? I was like getting adjusted mm-hmm. once a week, twice a week. And was like holding for 11 years. You mean that whole time you've been in perfect alignment with no interference at all. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, that really kind of wigged me out and almost like pushed me away from upper cervical a little bit. Cause it's like, you know, this is, this is a little too far, you know, on that, down that spectrum, but you hear these stories of folks that hold for months and years and first adjustments that hold for long periods of time and folks that, you know, get checked regularly and don't need adjusted. And it's kind of, you know, makes you think about what BJ would call the roaming, hoboing, roving subluxation and how there's a periodicity to it and how, uh, you know, that would be the term he used, but um, it's interesting to think about over time. You know, we think about this in terms of, of black and white. It's like, you're either, all the way clear or you're all the way subluxated, right? And it's like, I think there are times where, you know, the, the physiology is meandering back and forth, you know, and I've heard folks call it slippage. You know, Dr. Blair would check somebody if they showed interference, he would have them come back in a couple of days and recheck them again to see, is this is this really subluxation or are we just showing some some interference? And uh, it's it's interesting to think about, like you said, why why is the body not self-correcting? You know, we're, there's, there's a lot of conversations about that. And the things we're adjusting are the things that are not self-correcting, but we know that mechanism exists and we want to, you know, reinforce that mechanism of self-correction so that folks are, are living clear. Uh, but then on the flip side of it, it's like, is it just purely, you know, a mechanical mechanistic thing that is, is preventing that self-correction or, you know, is there more of a neurological reflex arc, you know, that you're talking about, which is because the thing is here, here's what I tell patients. Like, it's not that you're not moving, right? It's not that your, your, your upper neck is not moving. You're not locked. You're moving a lot, you know, you're moving a lot the wrong way. That's the problem. Um, so, you know, with that, with that mechanistic idea, like I, I think like you, whereas a lot of what we're doing on patients is, is mechanistic in application, but vitalistic in intention, I think. Um, and with certain, Blair adjustments, for example, you know, I have a hard time thinking like, okay, I, I just, I pinned the condyle up against the skull with the first part of this force. And then I torque it down around and I do all this, like the way we explain it and understand it, I just have a hard time, you know, thinking that's actually really happening in, in the body at that moment. Uh, so with some of these uh, inputs, you know, that we're making with adjustments, I think there's a little bit more to it than just how we're shoving the bones in the different directions that they're traveling. Uh, and and when you see these like fluoroscopy videos of, uh, of an atlas oscillating, you know, after an adjustment and kind of, you know, jiggling and wiggling and, and the body literally using, you know, the musculature to reposition the vertebrae, it makes you think a little bit differently about, you know, what we're doing and why. And and the timing of adjustments and how to measure that um, accurately for patients and to make sure that, you know, we don't create an abnormal reflex arc, you know, that is now another problem that has to be solved just to get back to the point where, you know, we can continue with their progress. Yeah. I think it, it also, I mean, you know, using this analogy, the reflex has it helped a, quite a bit in explaining why I'm looking at the feet, but adjusting the, <laughs> adjusting the neck yeah, and people yeah. seem to understand that much, much, much better than, than they were prior. You know, so, yeah. Um, well, and, and with the, uh, with the prill checks in general, you know, we call, they're modified prill checks, and there's the story about Dr. Muncy meeting Dr. Prill on an airplane or something like that. You know, who knows? But at the same time, you know, those are, you know, they're lumbar tests that we've extrapolated to the cervical region through the Lovett brother principles from Desjarnet and SOT and other things. So we are kind of, you know, we are taking a few physiological leaps to connect dots here, but they seem to be reliable. And, you know, that postural reflex action of 
stressing the body in different planes and seeing how it responds, you know, that makes a lot more sense than, you know, twisting your toes in as a C2 test. And so like, well, kind of, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a global spinal balance test, right? We call them balance tests a lot of the time. And I think that that makes a lot of good sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also in, you know, I have a Krill's book and, uh, and once again, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I remember getting older, you know, those brain cells don't work as well, but is that the, the, his technique always involved a challenge as well. Right. So there was never just, you know, the, the arm test or the leg test or whatever. There was always a challenge to then back it up. And, and that's something that I kind of, you know, I didn't know because when I learned it, we just we did the prill. Um, I learned in other classes the challenge. But, you know, from my recollection, going through the Blair course, we never really talked about a challenge or something that kind of I added in. And I think, you know, they have value. And I think like anything, everything has value. So, you know, the more and more I practice, the more and more I've become dependent, obviously, on the Titron and been able to, you know, get better improvement on the Titron, which I think is important, which is something in the beginning, I just kind of did it and I didn't really know what I was doing. But over a while, you, just, you, you see it over and over. And, uh, and that's one thing, too, in, in, our, in the Blair Society that we're going to improve on the way that we teach, um, you know, Titron pattern analysis. And then obviously with some new updates that, that should be coming out soon, with the Titron software, that's going to be a, a big game changer. Um, but needless to say, it's good to have a lot of backups. I don't, you know, I, I'm not the type that I'm just going to look at the Titron. I, I heavily weight it and I, you know, I'm able to get very good information on whether I'm, you know, really helping that person or not. But having these other backups, I mean, I, you know, for me, I have the Titron, obviously, number one. I have, you know, um, hip calipers, the laser hip calipers sold by the orthospinology group, um, which I think are awesome. And they're, you know, really easy for the patient to see, you know, how, how the how the reflexive system works, how we correct the upper neck and the hips balance out. And then, you know, having the um, the Prill test with the, with the challenge. So for me, you know, I have all this whole system and and. And I think in the last few years, you know, in the beginning, you asked, well, you know, how do you stay motivated? And me just, you know, there was, I think there's always a time in our, in our career where we get kind of down or, we, I don't know, you know, maybe we're just not as motivated as, as possible. And for me, in this last uh, few years, just, you know, putting it all together and really having a much better idea of when someone is subluxated and when they need an adjustment as opposed to no, because I think in the beginning, you know, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I think, you know, it's easy the first time they come in, you know, they need to be adjusted probably. You know? Yeah. And then after that, you know, we've all made an adjustment when we shouldn't have. And then we probably left someone subluxated when we when we should have adjusted them. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think, uh, you know, taking more Blair courses, working on the board, getting, you know, have these conversations that we have behind closed doors has improved my technique, improved my analysis, you know, because for us, the analysis is really the most important thing. I tell that to patient. And so I say, oh, I got to do all this. Can't you just adjust me right now because I'm in pain or whatever? And I say, no, the analysis is the most important thing. If I don't know what I'm what I'm going to what I'm going to be correcting, how, how am I going to correct it? So, um, yeah. you know, so it's really becoming much more comfortable with the analysis. And I feel now I have a very good idea of when someone is actually subluxated when they're not subluxated. And then as you mentioned, which is an interesting point, is maybe when they're in between. Because I know there are some of like the, you know, the stunch, older episodes that you either out, you're in, it's black or white. Uh, I, I guess maybe, I, I, in my humble opinion, I, I don't think that's the case. I agree more with you. I think there are cases where, you know, sometimes it's kind of going back and forth. And I remember, um, although not exactly the same subject, but kind of on the same means, is, is Dr. Forrest always used a good example of uh, tug of war. 
He said, once I correct you in the beginning, your body's going to kind of go through a tug of war where it wants to be in the right position, which I call the factory configurations and patients like that. But sometimes it'll kind of go to that temporary memory that it created over the years uh, because you, you might have been with this subluxation since you were a child. It's very likely. And so there's that kind of tug of war. And I, and I feel that, you know, happens there sometimes where, oh, the skin, you know, it's still kind of in pattern. Legs look more balanced. Hip is more balanced. So, you know, they're not totally clear, but let's leave it alone and, and, keep, and keep waiting. Whereas, you know, sometimes it's patterns there, you know, hip is off balance, leg check is positive, challenges, you know, clearly show that it's the atlas major. And then, you know, we got to go in and, and correct it so that the uh, body can function optimally. Yeah, 100%. And, and, you know, with a lot of these ideas, I think I always keep coming back to the basics. You know, like you talked about, you know, overcomplicating things. It's like, as we're talking, we're thinking about these concepts, it's like what's going to be the best way to, you know, to, to leverage this with our technique. It's like, well, you know, get, get better at, you know, reading your indicators, you know, get better at palpating the spine and being on a proper contact, you know, get better at controlling the piezoform through the adjustments and all these different things. Like you just kind of end up coming back to the basics and trying to really dial in, you know, your level of attention to detail with the things that matter most rather than kind of getting in the weeds on some of the weird stuff and, you know, over overthinking and overdoing it. Cause I've, I've done that, you know, where it's like, well, I'm going to do this tricky adjustment in combination with this other tricky adjustment. And, you know, we're going to kind of throw everything that Blair has to offer at you all at once. And it's like, yeah, I probably should have just done a ASR right transverse and left alone for two weeks, you know? And so it's easy to do that with all the options that we have available. You know, I think we all kind of go through phases where, like you said, I don't want to say you get bored, but you kind of just get distracted. Let's just put it that way. And I've gone through that myself, even recently, where it's like, I start to notice my results dipping a bit. And I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, well, it's you dummy, you know, pay attention to what you're doing and kind of slow down and like, you know, remember what is so important about what we're doing here. Because with these people that are suffering, it matters a whole lot, you know, and it doesn't matter how many patients you see in a day, they get, they went to the chiropractor once. Right. So like for each person, you got to reset and be on that level because it, it could make a big difference. And then when you got these people that are coming from miles and miles away, you know, which which we all do. It's one thing if you're you know, if you're not having a good day and you could say, well, let's check you again next week and just kind of see where we're at. Or someone just drove five, six hours. I just had a lady in here this week that came from Pekka's office. She's like visiting, you know, somewhere out in the mountains, you know, hours away. Just got her first adjustment in New Jersey a week ago. You know, and so she's she's really like apt to to get checked, which I appreciate. But she drives a couple hours down out of the mountains for me to check her. And, you know, she's clear. Right. So it's like she's got some stuff she's feeling. There's different things going on. This is better. That's not like she just started. She's got questions. Right. And it's like it's real easy in that moment to go like, well, let me just kind of peck away at this and see if we can do a little bit better versus, you know, the indicators aren't strong, you know, and, and here's a mo here's an opportunity to educate and to kind of reinforce the groundwork that's been laid by Dr. Pekka and Scott over there. But when these things happen, you got folks, I got folks coming in from Kansas. I got folks coming from New Mexico and all different parts of Colorado. It's like, you don't really have a chance to, you don't really have a chance to kind of work it out over time. You know, sometimes you've got to really be dialed in, in the moment and, and, Frankly, that's the way we should be all the time. And so when I have more of those interactions, I start thinking like that again. And then I start paying a little bit closer attention and the results creep back up. And then you realize there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of details that you can slip up with, you know, doing this stuff. Uh, but those are the things that, you know, if you're a young doc and you're listening and you're going like, man, I don't even know what dentate ligament cord distortion, you know, means, let alone any of this other stuff. I don't even know how to do a pro leg check. 
you know, I do need chest or I only do tight, whatever. I think that the key takeaways are that the, the main principles of your technique that you're taught in, those are the things that pay the most attention to. Those are going to be the things you screw up and you certainly can't go to the next level until you've got a really good level of proficiency with those. And when you get to that next level, you know, you talk to folks like Dr. Forrest, they're always, you know, reinforcing, like you said earlier, the simplicity and the basics and, you know, the, the sort of humility of understanding when we need to back off and, and leave it alone. Uh, so all, all good points. And, and regardless of, what scientific and philosophical rabbit holes you can go down at the end of the day, you're left with going, okay, so what, what do I do with this? You know, what am I going to do with this in the clinic here? And I think that's kind of the, the key takeaways as we're talking, thinking about for me, these are the things I'm going to be paying closer attention to understanding that if, if, you know, if there is some reflexive involuntary, you know, neurological activity going on here, that's, that's really detracting from this person's quality and quantity of life. Like we like to talk about, you better kind of you better handle that properly, right? And you better communicate with it effectively, because uh, what's even worse is someone come comes and gets one good adjustment, and they feel better, and then they never come back. And it's like, well, that helped them for right now, you know. But how much of a change in the trajectory of their health did we make, you know, with that one interaction? Could have been a big one, but we understand that there's time and repetition involved with with uh, actually healing and correcting some of this stuff. Yeah, I think uh, you know. As you said, you, you said, oh, I'm going to do these like two different complicated adjustments. And I think we probably all at one point or the other, maybe, you know, we've we've kind of fallen in a rut or whatever. Or we're just not adjusting. And so then we start kind of trying to modify things. Well, what if I do it like this? Oh, because this case is kind of weird. And uh, I've always found that just doing it as close to how Dr. Blair did it uh, will, will save you a lot of time and a lot of, uh, you know, having to climb out of a big rabbit hole. Uh, and, and it's funny not to say that there aren't things I've learned and experiences that I've had that have improved my technique and, you know, times, but as I tell the young guys, because a lot of times the young guy comes in and they see stuff, especially if they've been to another technique, another episodal technique, and they're like, well, why don't we do like this? Why don't we do like this? Why don't we do like this? And, you know, there is a point where it's like, well, no, first learn this and learn these basics because this, the majority of the patients are going to clear out with this. And there's a few like oddball cases where ah, some, some modifications might be, you know, might be necessary, but, um, you know, you really got to be really good at the basics before you start um, modifying anything. Yeah. And there, you know, I'm of two minds with this. Like I, I agree with that and believe it to be true because that's been my experience you know, but the other thing is I always think that like, well, Dr. Blair was like two years into practice when he started changing what he learned from BJ. And that's a bigger leap to make from sure. me, you right. know, me thinking differently about what Dr. Forrest taught me or Dr. Hall taught me. You know, it's like, I, I think that the spirit of Dr. Blair, you know, in the, in the sort of, the reason why we're having this conversation, why the technique exists, because a young doctor was not getting the results that he expected like you did, you know, when you were doing full spine work and he started, he started experimenting and implement. I'm sure there would have been 10,000 HIO docs that would slap them on the wrist and say, you just don't have enough experience yet. You know, it's going to take you five, 10, 15, 20 years before you can see what BJ saw. So just do what the master did kind of a thing. And I think that that's, that can be a strong position, but it can also be a limitation. You know, it can also produce blinders that keep us from advancing and accelerating. And I think, you know, we all want to see folks get better results quicker with fewer adjustments. I mean, that's kind of the promise of upper cervical, right? And so, uh, you know, I think as we kind of weigh all these different, all these different perspectives and have these conversations, like you said, I have a lot of these conversations offline, but I think it's fun to every so often just kind of have one to share just to let folks know that if you've got doubts or you've got, 
you know, issues that you're struggling wrestling with or things that you're, you know, questioning, it's, you're not the only one, you know, it's not like all of us have everything figured out over here and we're just, you know, cruising down easy street, clearing out, getting straight lines on every scan and every patient's holding forever. And, you know, doing cartwheels out of the office, leaving their cane and medications behind. It's like, it's, it's, it's a, it's a working thing. It's a, it's a real, uh, it's a real effort to maintain a level of focus and passion and intensity with, with something like what we're doing. And there's a lot of skills to learn, right? There's a lot of ways to screw up leg checks. There's a lot of ways to screw up pattern analysis. There's a lot of ways to screw up, you know, uh, positioning on a table and, and taking a contact and doing an adjustment. So lots of different things to work on. And I think you can get overwhelmed, you know, with, with the sheer volume of things to improve on. I know I felt that way a lot uh, and still do at times, but I think you just kind of continue to have the conversations. You continue to wrestle with the things that rub you the wrong way, you know, and if you have, if some of these conversations, if, if you're really philosophically strong and you think that well, BJ defined a subluxation, you know, that's, it's been defined. It's been, you know, we don't need to change it. We don't need to toy with that. We don't need to think about it. I want to say, well, you know, think about why that rubs you the wrong way. You know, think about why you might bristle when, you know, folks talk about things differently. It's like you said earlier, I think it's, it's, it's good to have different perspectives weigh in. This is one thing I love about the way we do the conferences. We bring folks from other different perspectives to come and, and to share what they're, what they're thinking and what they're seeing and to, and, and to meet on the common ground and then observe some of these differences and, and think about how we can do better. We've got Dr. Tamimi coming this, you know, to this conference and she's a radiologist, right? We're going to be doing a deep dive in CBCT stuff. That's going to be really important for a lot of Blair docs using CBCTs. we got a Nuka doc, Derek, Terry McCoskey. He's going to be our MC. He's going to be kind of, you know, leading the charge for the weekend. They come from a totally different perspective with upper cervical subluxation analysis and correction. Now, we've always got, we got Dr. Josh Hank, who's coming from an HIO perspective. And he's going to be talking about advanced thermography and, you know, some of the different tools he's using. It's, you know, I think one of the strengths of our technique, and I've, I've actually heard this from folks in other techniques is, that we're pretty open, you know, in, in certain ways. And we're, we're willing to have those conversations, um, you know, and, and I think that's just kind of the starting point for, you know, building the context for, for making changes, like you said, because we always, we want to make changes in isolation of other things. And we think, well, this will be the thing, you know, that'll make the difference, but it's like, well, let's have, let's have the bigger conversations so that we can kind of narrow down and drill down and be very uh, efficient with the use of our time and resources. Cause going back to the beginning of the conversation, you know, this, this stuff's not easy to, uh, you know, it's not easy to steer the ship in a different direction. And if you're always changing the directions, it's just like with patients, if you're changing what you're doing all the time, they're going to withdraw because it's not consistent. It's not, um, it's not comfortable. It doesn't feel secure. And so, you know, there's ways to do that stuff, but I appreciate, I appreciate having the conversations, um, especially in the conference setting. So we're just about a month out from the conference at this point, it's early September, um, by the time you guys hear this, or I think Tracy even extended early bird registration a little while. Um, it's going to be in Charlotte. Awesome destination. Awesome location. Great lineup of speakers. Uh, CEs are included. You know, if you register as a member this year, you're automatically getting your CEs, which is awesome. So uh, if you're if you're a little late to the game and registering, get there, you know, even up to the last minute. I don't, I don't encourage this because poor Tracy, she'd wring my neck if she heard me say this. But we had folks show up at the last conference without even, they just showed up. You know, like I'm here for the conference, right? So definitely register ahead. It's the way to it's the way to for us to plan to be successful with all the attendees. But um, yeah, but come and have these conversations and uh, and hear these different perspectives from speakers and you know, after hours too. That's where a lot of this fun stuff kind of ends up getting talked about as well. 
Sure. It's uh, the 6th of September. She's extended the early bird discount until the 6th of September. So I think after five, this, you guys have a holiday, right? Or, uh, yeah, it's Labor, it's Labor, Day, Labor Day, Day weekend. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So don't forget, register, come on out. And as uh, John said, we have a great, I think I'm, I'm very excited about the, the lineup we have. I think it is a lot of diversity. And and just the last thing, and I think that will kind of end this up, is uh, you spoke about details, you know, because I think when you do go to seminars, there's a lot of details that, you know, there's just so much basic information, but it, sometimes it's the details, as you said, the contact point patient position that you could have a very pretty adjustment, but you're not on the right contact or the patient's not in the correct position. So there are those little details and that's something that we want to work uh, to improve in in our Blair instruction, in the courses that we provide um, so that we can increase the, the, you know, so we can increase the efficiency and proficiency of all our Blair chiropractors. And, and not to say that any of the past instructors did incorrectly. There's just things sometimes that we just don't know. Like even talking right now on this podcast, like you said something, there were things that were like started floating around in my head. And then all of a sudden they, they went away. <laughs> and other things that entered in my head. Um, you know, there's just so much, there's just so much stuff that it's impossible for any one person to, to memorize and teach everything. Um, but we, we have to strive to continue to improve and, and be able to teach those details that are really going to make the big difference. Because for me, I don't accept that anybody doesn't get extremely better. And I think that's something that's really excited me late, lately is because I look at it as a challenge. Hmm. You know, I, I don't I mean, I don't care if you come in and you have spinal stenosis, you have uh, AS on the entire spine, your whole spine is fused. You know, uh, I'm, you know, just like I don't BJ, BJ took people that were almost dying, um, you know, and, and adjusted them. And I, I there was a while where I, I didn't see that all the time. And now lately, you know, I've just refined the technique. I've focused on the details and not to say that I can improve everybody. <laughs> uh, but I do feel that, you know, my sub my ability to correct the subluxation um, has improved drastically in, in, in every single year. You know, I look back, uh, I've been in practice now. What, 15 years, 15, yeah, 15 years. Wow. 15 years. <laughs> Crazy. Um, and, uh, you know, I think back to my first year practicing Blair and I'm like, and, and I got pe- people improved, but it wasn't the percentage I would like. And I'm like, man, what I was doing then was just totally <laughs> like, if I saw myself doing that now, I have to give myself a slap. Um, <laughs> but I've gone to almost every single Blair conference. I've attended other, you know, Blair chiropractors courses. And each year I just keep learning and learning and learning. And that's what excites me. And, and so if you feel like you've plateaued, come out to the conference, attend a seminar, um, you know, buy the, the Blair DVDs. There's just so many little details and that should excite you. And then getting those people better because I, and I love everybody. I, I tell, I tell my patients, I love them. I'm like, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Some of them think that's what I'm like. Brazilians are a little bit more about that kind of thing. <laughs> I, I, I don't love you like my mom or my wife or my kid, uh, but I love you like a human, you know, and I want everybody to have a good positive energy. And, and I tell them that it makes them feel good. Some people are depressed. Sometimes they're not feeling good. Sometimes their spine isn't changing the, the rate they want. And I just look at them and say, Hey, look, you got to be patient, but I'm going to do everything I can to, to get you better. And uh, if you keep following through, um, you know, the, the, the probability that you're going to improve and you're going to be satisfied with the result at the end is pretty high. Yeah, no, that's powerful. And I think there's definitely wisdom in that. And I hope that folks, uh, you know, really think about that and, and where that applies to their own, whatever phase of life and practice you're in, because there's different times and different seasons that you go through. And, uh, you know, at any given time, there's different things that you should focus on things that you focus on. You probably shouldn't, you know, and so a little bit of self-awareness and a little bit of humility goes a long way with, you know, staying on that path because there's a lot to be curious about, you know, there's a lot to be interested in and the grass is not always greener. You know, I I've come back to that a few times when it's like, 
whatever it is, a different technique or maybe some referral to some specialty, you know, type of provider. It's like, you know what, with, with our principles and with chiropractic principles and the application of our, our technique, you know, what I think people really appreciate that they get from us is a, is a authentic healthcare experience where someone listens to them, cares for them, does something for them hands-on that does improve them, you know? And uh, it's, it's funny to go back and listen to the previous podcast with Dr. Josh Hank. He said, you know, if you think about it, chiropractic is Western medicine, you know, this is American born and bred, you know, hands-on, um, you know, not to use the term medicine, but this is, this Western healthcare, you know, this is homegrown, you know, heal the body type stuff rather than a lot of the, uh, what we consider, you know, traditional Western medicine. So I think, you know, we can bring a lot of what makes us, um, what makes us great, you know, as people and Americans and, and bring that to the table. And, and like you said, showing a little bit of love and caring and compassion and warmth is not a bad thing too, you know, and you could do that, whether you take 15 minutes with a visit or 90 seconds or whatever you do, you can infuse a little bit of that, a little bit of that in. And I think that goes a long way. So good stuff. All right. Well, we appreciate you, Jake. We appreciate your leadership and your dedication to uh, the society. You know, I know this kind of work is thankless and, and you don't, there's usually not a big line of people waiting to pat you on the back. There's usually uh, the opposite. And so we appreciate you. And I, I acknowledge that, you know, we see that you're working hard and we, it doesn't go unnoticed and it's not for nothing. So appreciate it. Uh, you too, brother. All right. We'll see you soon. And folks, you know, it's, it's, go ahead. One month. Yeah. One month in a week. <laughs> What's that? I said one month in a week. One month in a week. Yeah. Looking forward to it. We'll see you guys in Charlotte. Um, and if you have uh, questions about any of this stuff, if there's anything we talked about that you want to kind of add to or things that you think, you know, we're, we're totally off base on, send me an email, blairchiropodcast at gmail.com. Reach out. You know, this is not just, you know, this is not just my, you know, sounding board to show off to everybody. Like I, I get emails from students and other docs and they ask questions and they give feedback. And I love that stuff. It helps us to know, you know, what you're hearing and what you value. And so if any of this stuff kind of came, you know, stimulate some thoughts, like send them on, you know, add the, add to the conversation. We welcome that. So uh, other words, we'll see you guys in a few weeks there in, uh, in Charlotte. Take care, Jake. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and check the show notes for links to our hosts, guests, and other relevant information. And head on over to www.blairchiropractic.com to find out more about Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic or to find a doctor close to you. If you're a chiropractor or healthcare provider, you'll want to look at www.blairtechnique.com for information on upcoming events, professional development resources, and some very useful online training modules. You can also find a link to make a charitable donation, which is greatly needed to advance research. Until next time, be well.